Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a board member and CFO of Tipolis, a company committed to becoming the creator, owner, and operator of a global portfolio of international autonomous cities. Beyond finance and accounting, he also has an affinity for Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and free cities, and has written and spoken extensively on these ideas around the US and globally. Please welcome to the show, Alex Voss. Alex, how are you? Very good, Mikkel. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, absolutely. After years of being friends with you and having dinner and drinks and getting to spend a lot of time together over in different countries, I'm really excited to actually have you on the show and kind of learn more about your backstory and how you got into all of these things. So maybe we'll start there. How did you end up working with Tipolis? How did you decide that free private cities and these concepts were your calling? Absolutely. Well, I'd say the, the kind words back to you. It's been great knowing you over these years. The way I got involved with Tipolis and with the idea of free private cities is really actually starting in my high school days of being a basketball player. I had the opportunity to uh, go play basketball at University of Chicago. When I was a senior in high school, I had a basketball coach who was writing an Austrian economics blog at the time. And he said, you know, fine, go to University of Chicago. Great school. You're not going to go wrong there, but make sure you're reading the Austrians on the side, in addition to the to the Chicago school, that'll be really the best free market economic education you can get. So I did, I followed that advice. I went to Chicago, enjoyed that experience, but all the while, of course, this uh, advice to read Austrian economics led me to Mises.org and similar institutions. When I graduated, I just so happened to be reading my daily Mises.org and found that Titus Gebel had just written a book called Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. I, of course, had to go get the book. This was right up my alley. How are we going to privatize the state? How are we going to provide you know, so-called public services? And Titus's take on that was, was very fascinating to me. So after reading the book, I reached out to him and I said, hey, I just wanted to congratulate you on the great book. Very interesting. Let me know if there's anything we can do working together, meaning can I invite you to the U.S. to speak on these topics, those sorts of ideas. Never imagining that we were going to start a company to actually do it. As it turns out, Titus was very receptive. We had a nice introductory call, but nothing really major happened. I became an ambassador of the foundation, and then that was sort of it for a period of time. About two years later, Titus came back to me and said, hey, I'm looking to start a company that does this all over the globe. I've had an experience in Honduras, and I want to do this elsewhere. Do you want to come on board? I'm looking at myself. Well, I'm working in finance. We're just started a global pandemic and lockdowns, and I'm stuck in my home. Sure, I can take on a little bit of side work and see you know, this experiment that we can try. And so I took it on. Turns out that uh, Titus and I work quite well together. And from there, you know, ever since I've been working with Tipolis and then in some capacity as well as an advisor to uh, his not-for-profit, the Free Cities Foundation. Well, definitely, I want to get into talking about the Free Cities Foundation as well. But so to kind of focus first on Tipolis, so were you employee number one then, or was the organization kind of already up and running and you joined later? It's hard to know exactly who was employee number one. I I would call maybe there was three of us that were all employee number one in some sense. At the time, the for-profit company that is now named Tipolis was called Free Private Cities, Inc. 
This was an, a company located in Panama, and it was used to house an investment that Titus had made into Honduras Prospera, or its parent company. At this point, then in 2020, when we launched the company, Titus brought me on board. We He contributed that ownership stake to the new company, and then we raised private capital from other investors as sort of the founding of what is now Tipolis. So I was, you know, one of the very first employees uh, of the company, along with maybe a couple others. Okay, amazing. All right. I guess kind of the next logical question is, what exactly does Tipolis do? Yeah, so Tipolis is in the business of making free cities or free private cities a reality. We do this really through going to host nations, speaking with the people in power of these countries, and typically, the, the people in power of these countries understand, look, we know we have problems. We want to attract more investment. We understand people don't trust us, but we can't use this you know, democratic system to just reform the whole country. There's too many vested interests. There's too many stakeholders. It just won't work. Do you have other options? Turns out we think we do. We suggest, well, why don't you, instead of trying to reform the whole country, if you can, that's fine. But if not, if it's more feasible, why don't you just set apart a smaller plot of land and say, look, you can operate this area a little bit differently. And we're in the business at Tipolis of trying to convince governments to do this, buying that land on the open market. So totally free, not given to us from... Yeah, not concessions, not crown land or something. This is... Private owners, private marketplace, make yep. a deal, person get paid, not expropriating land, not stealing land. You hear all kinds of random things by socialist news media, which we'll kind of talk about later on in the conversation. But uh, sorry to interrupt, but continue. Exactly. Yeah. So on the private market, exactly. So completely consensual. We'll buy up this property. It's typically you know, not really, uh, it's kind of virgin land for the most part in our experience. And we will develop a number of things. First, the physical infrastructure. So this means, you know, streets, the roads, we are who builds the roads, the sewer systems, the water treatment systems, the energy, all of these sorts of things that you think it means to live in the first world, we're responsible for building up. In addition to the physical infrastructure, we're also in charge of, in most cases, you know, depending on what we can negotiate with the government, implementing as much of a regulatory and legal system as possible. This spans from, you know, how do you get or do you need licenses to do any certain business? How do you do you need insurance to do any sort of businesses? How does dispute resolution work between when there are disputes? First, between people in the city. Second, between businesses in the city and outsiders. And then third, between either residents or businesses in the zone and us as the zone operator. We are, of course, not arbitrating our own disputes. That's a third party mechanism that we implement. But we, this is all our sort of role in establishing how these processes and mechanisms work in order to ensure the most amount of security and, and trust in the governance that's being provided. Okay, when you say the road and the infrastructure and the sewage and the water treatment and everything like that, the money from that, is that coming from tax dollars? Or where does the money come for those types of things? Yeah, absolutely. So in general, our view is that we don't want to have taxes. We don't believe the taxes are necessary to provide these services. Now, it's not always possible to completely get out of taxes for international and global geopolitical reasons for sometimes nation state political reasons as well. But in the ideal scenario, we have no taxes whatsoever. Uh, we charge what we call resident fees. So we buy the land on the open market, we develop the infrastructure, and we hope to encourage people to move to the city to live and to work and to do their business there. When they move to the city, they don't just get to move there. It's our land that we own. They have to sign a, some sort of contract with us. We call it a resident contract. That contract outlines exactly what they have to pay us and what we owe them in return. So, of course, we're a for-profit business, so we're not in the business of welfare. We're providing a relatively minimal state. We are providing dispute resolution, security, protection of life, liberty, property. Those are the sort of basic services that we're providing. I guess garbage disposal and some of those other sort of municipal services as well. And then you'll pay us a certain fee every year. We've done a pretty fairly robust 
analysis on how expensive it is to provide this governance. And we really do think governance is not an expensive service to provide. Really, the less governance, the better. You need some very, very basic things. Potentially, it could be even provided in an anarcho-capitalist model. Uh, but we think we're the entrepreneur, and we, we're going to take a chance to see if we can provide it in a model in which people buy in. So that's really how we provide for this. We ultimately have to raise funds from investors, develop the land, and then hope we earn a profit through these resident fees that we charge as people move into the city. And then, of course, a portion of those resident fees will go to the ongoing maintenance of the infrastructure and those sorts of things. Well, absolutely. You're entrepreneurs. You have a thesis, an idea. You've gone to the marketplace, done your research. You're creating a product and you're inviting people to come and join you. If they sign the contract and it makes sense for them and their family and they voluntarily want to pay you an X amount of dollars for these services, that is a libertarian concept. It's fully in line. And I just want to make this really hammer home from the beginning because we've done interviews and programs on free private cities before. And actually my program got picked up in a socialist newspaper and they were saying Danish colonialist podcaster wants to expropriate land from the locals and they expect us to pay for things. And it was like, everything was completely taken out of context. None of it made sense. And it was basically a soundbite of me saying, that's amazing. And how wonderful this would be. And they called me a colonialist. I'm the furthest thing away from a colonialist. Dear God. So right from the beginning, I think it's very important to be clear about these things. Absolutely. And it's, it is very important to be clear because typically it's the exact reverse of what is proposed. We are totally doing this on the private market. We will, in fact, largely contribute to public resources through private investment. So we're actually subsidizing, in some sense, the other governance services outside of the zone. And absolutely, expropriation, A, is not legal in many of the countries in which we are going, and B, absolutely not something that our company would ever do or consider. Fantastic. All right, let's get into probably the most well-known example of this, which is Prospera and Honduras. I don't know where you want to start. It's a huge project. I've been following it for years. There's been some trouble with the government. Where do you want to dive in on this one? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, Prospera and its uh, other counterpart uh, in the mainland, uh, Ciudad Morazan, are, are probably the two most advanced uh, what I would call free private cities or, or quasi-free private cities. Both of them are excellent uh, examples of exactly what sort of market we're trying to create at Tipolis. That is the market for living together. It's really interesting to look at both of these projects and how different they are, and yet they're both providing a very valuable service to the clientele in which they are tailored for. So Prospera in particular is dear to our hearts at Tipolis because we are involved in the project to some degree. We are not involved in the day-to-day -day operations of it. We aren't running it, that sort of thing. But Titus, our CEO and the founder of Tipolis, was a legal officer at Prospera from its beginning and was involved in crucial aspects from to bringing about this whole ZA regime that allows for uh, Prospera and its other brethren to, to be created in the first place. So we're very, very uh, interested in seeing how the project moves forward, where there's certainly lessons learned from it. There are definitely pioneers on this path and, and sort of uh, brothers in arms in trying to create this new market. So we're, we're big supporters of Prospera. Well, if you open the headlines or you search Prospera on mainstream media, there's probably some not flattering headlines at the moment because of the new government. I've had many people on the program over the last seven years, and we've talked about this. So, you know, what's the mid-2023 outlook of Prospera? What's happening right now? Sure. So the outlook for Prospera is, I would say, mixed at this time. It's, on the one hand, they're doing a great job. They're investing in apartments and they have the Duna residences going up. They're they're trying to move people into the zone. They have a revamped legal code. They have a whole dispute resolution service. They're including more companies, incorporating more companies there. You know, so on the one hand, they're doing exactly what we thought they would do. You have improved governance, you have world-class regulatory systems, and things are going like you would expect. Companies are interested in moving in, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, they have this major uh, elephant in the room that is the government of Honduras simply does not like the ZA regime. 
And Prospera, as the first one and perhaps the most notable or biggest named one, is really taking a lot of those arrows right now uh, from the government. And the government was elected democratically. And so I think, fair enough, there must be a fair amount of people in Honduras who are against the Zetes. I'm not convinced they know what the Zetes are, nor what they provide or what they're getting in return. But nonetheless, they are against the Zetes. And so while the the election of Castro in, I believe it was November of 21, has created a fair amount of uncertainty for Prospera, so far, the international agreements that Prospera has been subject to based on their investment into the country have held firm. And the country has not invaded or expropriated their property. They haven't done anything to destroy any of the land or buildings. That said, they are putting a fair amount of pressure on Prospera. They're also putting a fair amount of pressure on companies such as like banks and things like that that are working in Prospera to make it a little bit harder and harder. And unfortunately, what this does is it creates so much uncertainty that it's hard to attract investment. And this includes both investment into Prospera so that they can develop out the zone, but it also means investment of XYZ manufacturing company that wants to locate there and employ a number of Hondurans in Prospera, but they can't do it because you can't look your board in the eye and say, look, this is in the best interest of our shareholders right now to go into this new zone where there's so much uncertainty related to the government. So because of the uncertainty that's been created as a result of this, it's hard to get investment in. And Prospera is rightfully now going to arbitration with the Honduran government because they're saying, look, yeah, you haven't come and invaded our property, but you are absolutely diminishing the value of the investments that have been made into Prospera and that potentially could be made into Prospera because of this uncertainty. And therefore, you're liable according to the uh, international agreements that we've signed. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not equipped to weigh in on that, but the logic seems pretty sound to me that it's hard to attract economic investment into a country when there's so much uncertainty. This is something we've seen time and again, even if not in this explicit form. Well, one of the other things that I was reading recently was that Honduras government was pushing back and saying, look at you promised that you would hire 10,000 Hondurans to come and work in Prospera. But at the same time, they're making it more difficult to do business and putting up all these roadblocks, which means that projects are delayed. So it's like, how do you expect the projects to get going so that we can hire the Hondurans to do the work? Like it's this very weird type of thing. And then they point the finger and say, see, you didn't do what you promised. But it's like, we're not doing what we promised because of the environment that you have set. And I mean, it just goes around and around in a circle. I think that's absolutely true. And I, I don't think that's there's there's any mistake necessarily therein. I think there there's a, probably a reason for those arguments. But nonetheless, I mean, the, the point is is well taken. The thing to keep in mind with these projects, though, is they're incredibly capital intensive. It is a billion dollar plus idea to develop even a small city. That means there's going to have to be lots and lots of jobs created. We need tons and tons of people that are developing all kinds of infrastructure. You need engineers of all sorts. You need, and we're not talking about just, you know, just construction workers, as you might think of them. I mean, we're talking about very skilled people as well as uh, somewhat less skilled labor. So it's a whole spectrum of jobs that are, that are being provided. And it's not just, you know, one year's worth of development. These are 20 plus year projects. So we're talking about long-term, really stable real estate projects that require a ton of employment. And then the final result is that, of course, there are going to be jobs because new companies come in and they need the lawyers and the accountants and the so on and so forth. So the, the jobs created would certainly come and were on their way to coming and are in other cases as well. It's just, you know, when you get handcuffed early, that's a pretty difficult to, thing to navigate. Well, Reason TV just put out a documentary, I want to say five or six days ago about Prospera. I had a chance to watch it. It's very worthwhile. I think it's about 30 minutes long. You can find it for free on YouTube. I encourage people to go and take a look at it. I think it gives a very balanced viewpoint of the project. It's not just pure bullish. They're not only showing one side of the story, they're interviewing locals who are for it and against it. They're doing clips right in there of the president and what she's saying. I thought they did a really excellent job of it. And I was talking to my business partner at Expat International School, Michael Strong, who's also very involved in a lot of the Prospera projects. 
And he also was very on board with a lot of these things and and I think really agrees with you know what we're talking about here today. We're very hopeful about things and we want to see things work out. But this doubt and what the government is doing to to sow doubt is, is tough. So it's it's an ongoing situation. That's why I think it's good at this program to kind of cover it every three months, every six months, and to get the update from people who are maybe a little bit closer to it than others. Absolutely. And I I saw that reason uh, video as well and also thought it was quite well done. I think, you know, I shared it around with a number of people close to me and I said, look, I think this is a pretty good synopsis of of the project and where things stand. It's not all, you know, peaches and roses. There are challenges. There are issues. But this this shows the idea behind it, the people behind it, what they're trying to do and the challenges that they're facing. And I think that's probably a pretty fair depiction. One thing I would like to, I guess, highlight is while we are talking about the challenges related to the government, and those are true and unfortunate because they're completely unnecessary, the thing that is typically, in my view, underestimated with these projects is that we are really talking about entrepreneurs trying to start a business that is in the business of providing governance. And when we think about entrepreneurs, I mean, what is the statistic? Something like 90% of businesses fail after you know X period of time. Well, that's not necessarily going to be different in the space of governance. Perhaps it's even higher because it is so capital intensive. It's not building one little widget or one one, you know, app or something like that. As as difficult as those projects are, building a city is probably more difficult, I would say. I can agree with that. (laughs) I've never built a city, but I can I can imagine for sure. Sure. So, I, you know, I think this idea that that entrepreneurs are incapable of failing and that if the government got out of the way, there's no nothing could go wrong. That's simply not true. There will be challenges. And that's OK. That's exactly what we like. The Austrian economist in me is saying, look, entrepreneurs are taking risks if they don't provide what the market wants they will fail. And that doesn't mean all the infrastructure that they built just gets destroyed. It's still there. Some new entrepreneur can come in and try to provide these governance services and say they, you know, revamp things and charge a different pricing scheme or whatever it is that they're going to do to make things work. That's how the market actually works and reallocates capital so that the residents, the clients of these cities are getting the services that they provide. And that's not to comment at all on Prospera as much as all entrepreneurs that are in this business well, this is this is entrepreneurial and you there will be failures. Well, something that I think is very interesting about Prosper and is worth mentioning when you look at this environment that has been set and the price points for entering in and for the real estate in the the homes there and the office space and the co-working and all of these types of things, a lot of this negativity is actually priced into the investment right now. So yes, you are taking a risk, but the prices reflect that risk. If everything was 100% perfect, chances are they wouldn't be this price. So they would be considerably higher, right? I think that is a is a very fair statement to look at. And Mikhail, on that topic, I, I think that's a very good point to make. I, I mean, if everything was perfect, then real estate prices would be what they are in Singapore or, well, I guess Singapore is a little bit of a unique example, but call it in Manhattan or you know somewhere else that is maybe not perfect, but on a global scheme, pretty darn good. And that is another model of the business is that you're buying real estate that is undeveloped in a third world country, typically, that is in a massive plot of land, it's rural, and there's no infrastructure, and you're legal or otherwise, you're putting all of these things in place, and you're not getting your typical real estate appreciation for that work of, you know, whatever it is, a couple times up to like 10 times, you're getting thousandfold return on the real estate, at least as we, the entrepreneurs that are doing this, believe. So that's really the upside is you take something that doesn't have uh, you know, it has all these risks priced in. And over time, you reduce and mitigate those risks. And, and then you get the appreciation in that real estate prices, as well as other investments uh, as a result. Exactly, exactly. If everything was already done, all the infrastructure was built, everything was finished, we had the resolution from the government, it wouldn't be at the price point it is today. It would be a multiple of that. So think about that when you're making any type of investment. I mean, I work with international real estate in probably a dozen different countries, and I want people to understand these types of concepts. You know, sometimes they think, oh, well, I want this, this, and this. Okay, you want this, this, and this, great. But instead of $79,000, it's going to be $300,000. What do you want? You you can't have your cake and eat it too. There's always going to be a give and take on these things. And we have to be realistic when 
looking at it. Now we weigh the risks and we we do our research and our due diligence. And I want people to see things and touch it and feel it and smell it and taste it. But it's important to understand the full view of the landscape when we're talking apples to apples. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country, and the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico, and coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. Okay, I want to move a little bit forwards, or I want to change gears a little bit off of Prospera. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what are the differences between Tipolis and the Free Cities Foundation, because I'm involved with both, you're involved with both, but sometimes people kind of confuse the two organization roles and responsibilities and, and these types of things. Absolutely. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to clarify a bit. So I think the reason for the confusion is really just that Titus Gebel is the founder and on the board, uh, the board chairman, effectively, of both companies. That is, to in a large extent, you know, the major overlap between the two of them. The Free Cities Foundation is really in place to build the moral and economic case for innovations and in governance. We think that is going to be through, you know, free private cities or free cities, international cities, all of these sort of terms that are, you know, overlapping and similar concepts, sometimes a little bit different and so on. That's really the case for the the Free Cities Foundation. They write a lot. They are publishing books. They host a conference, the Liberty in Our Lifetime Conference this year in Prague in October. And so that's really what the Free Cities Foundation is doing, as much as also aggregating all of these sorts of projects across the globe and highlighting them and saying, you know, this is what is the strength of this organization versus that organization. What sort of autonomy do they have? And, and, you know, who are the founders behind it? How can you get in touch with them if you want to move there? Those sorts of ideas. That's what the foundation does. On the other hand, Tipolis is in the process or in the market of making more of these free cities. It is the for-profit business arm. It's a Singapore entity. And we are looking to, in no uncertain terms, build the Singapores or the Dubais or, you know, you name it, of the future. That we take a lot of inspiration from them. We think it's no shock or surprise as to why Singapore and Dubai have been successful. And we try to take the lessons learned from those as well as, you know, other places as well and pull it into a sort of private for-profit model and develop those across the globe. So Tipolis is trying to do this not just in one place, but in call it five to 10 places over the next 10 years to create what we call a network of international cities, each international city being a, a free private city or a special administrative region within a host nation. So really the foundation is like the educational arm of the the larger concept and you've separated the two between the for-profit business and just the general education and and awareness piece of it. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And the foundation is certainly close to Tipolis in the sense that they're promoting what we're developing and trying to support us where they can. But the, the foundation is much larger than just Tipolis. It is explicitly promoting all of our competitors, all of our quasi-competitors, all of the people that are developing intentional communities and so on and so forth. They're really trying to create this sort of intellectual background or educational background for this industry uh, as we think that it's going to continue to grow. Yeah, because I've had colleagues from the foundation on the program before, and we've talked about the differences of like, what is a ZETI and what is a special economic zone and why do these exist? And other examples, because there's actually hundreds, if not thousands of them around the world. And we've talked about on the program, Hong Kong and how it became like this and Shenzhen, and Singapore and Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Mauritius and, you know, all these places 
that have special sets of rules inside of a larger country or a larger region? And why are they so successful? So kind of getting people up to speed about a lot of these things has been a really important piece of it. But I like that Tipolis is like, I would say the practical side of libertarianism, which is what I do for a living. I mean, I consider myself a freedom seeker and and, and I read a lot of Mises and a lot of the theoretical writers about libertarianism, but I don't deal in the theoretical side whatsoever. That's not my speciality. It's not my job. I deal only in the practical sense. And that's why I think that the work at Tipolis is so important because it's it really is, you know, what can we actually do in our lives to have more freedom? Absolutely. And we view it much the same way. You know, that that theoretical side is obviously very important. And one of the things I'll just like to call out real quick that the foundation is doing is really promoting the cases of and, and the theory behind why the ZAs and other zones like them are benefiting not just, you know, you and I as Western expats or potential Western expats, but really, you know, the local folks that need more opportunities and then haven't been given what we've been given. And they are promoting those. And that is great to see. I'm not in any sense an egalitarian, but it is nice to see the people that need benefits the most are actually getting the opportunity. It's not just handouts. It's really just creating the framework for them to provide for themselves. So I think that's certainly a valuable aspect of what the foundation does. But like you, I am very fascinated and interested in Austrian economics. And I do write and speak about it frequently. But I want to know what can I do in the here and now? And I am firmly of the view that the thing you can do that's most beneficial is start a business that does these sorts of things. Not necessarily builds private cities, but start a business that provides a service for somebody in which if you are earning a profit, then you're providing more value to the world than you're taking out of it. And I think that, that really that capitalist mindset is is extremely necessary. And we've we've now applied that to the case of governance services and, and private cities. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think it's important to give back. And I think that there are voluntary ways that we can give back. I have a charity of choice. I give a certain amount of money every month. I sit on the board of directors. I help. My staff works for them and things like that. I think that that is an important piece, but that's a personal decision. I think that there are also ways that you can give back by employing local people, which helps give purpose to someone's life. So people want to be productive. They want to build something and be part of something where they can create. I think if everything you do is just giving it away, actually, you can create a trap for people. I don't agree with a lot of these things. With the work that I do at 1018, okay, we're trying to give people a head start and you know a bit of a break but then everything is entrepreneurship. How do we give them you know, the skills that they need so they can create? I have a full-time staff in probably five or six different countries. I got like 18, 19 staff that I've created work for them and I keep them fully engaged and employed. And if one week they only have 10 hours worth of work, I will make up projects to keep them busy so that I can continue to pay them and I choose not to just give the money to them as charity. I make them work for it. You know, even if I don't have all the work, I, I just get creative and just, you know, here, do this. Or actually, I even give hours of my staff member if they don't have full 40 hours a week. I have them work on the nonprofit and I donate their hours and I pay their salary to do things like that web developer, graphic design, or editing, video editing, things like this. Because I think that people need to stay productive. I think that. You need to use your hands and your mind and you need to be involved in something. That's my opinion. No, absolutely. I would agree with that. And sometimes it's not even just giving a job as much as in places like Honduras. If you just give them security, then they can start their own company and do something entrepreneurial. And we've seen a, a plethora of cases in particular in the other ZA that I mentioned earlier, Ciudad Morazan, which is in a bit of a tougher part of Honduras, near Choloma, the industrial capital of the country, where there is unfortunately gang and cartel issues. But if you're in Morazan, there's a security, you know that people aren't going to be breaking in and entering in the night and stealing your inventory. And so as a result, you have small time entrepreneurs, but that's how everyone starts, you know, developing stores and barbershops and little, little sorts of entrepreneurial businesses. And we'll see what happens over, over time. This is in a small little Ciudad Morazan right now, which has unfortunately paused 
a massive multi you know, eight figure level of capital investment per year into Morazan to make it what it could be. They've paused much of that uh, as a result of what the government's done. So, you know, I think that these sorts of entrepreneurial ideas are are only being hindered through that sort of the, the Morazan ability to provide the security and this environment for more and more people is being artificially limited. Well, Morazan's an interesting example as well, because Morazan is actually not about expats moving to the country and having residential real estate or anything like that. It's more about factories and employing the local people and having a safe environment for that. So that's on the mainland. Then Prospera is out on the island. So I don't think that Prospera has Prospera and Roatan have the same type of safety concerns. I don't want people to kind of get the two confused here. Out on the islands is a very different story, but that's more where expats might want to spend a bit of time. It's a diving haven. It's more tropical beaches and things like that. So there there are differences. But really, when I I think when the government is going in to attack these things, it's not really Morazan that they're going after. But Morazan's the one that's suffering, which means their own people are suffering, which really means that they're just they're cutting off their ear to spite their face. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's just, it's so sad, the whole thing. It's absolutely very sad. It, it, I mean, these are the unintended consequences that, that you're going to get, you know, when you have and you elect uh, a regime that is running explicitly on abolishing these things, even if they adhere to, you know, le- international legal agreements, the uncertainty that's created is simply going to, if not stop, severely diminish the amount of, investment that's coming into the country from other places. And in particular in Honduras, you know, the United States is strategically positioned that there there would logically be many investments coming into Honduras from the United States, just given geography. And, and of course, the United States has a lot of people with a lot of money. Uh, so there's a lot of investment that they're missing out on as a result of this uh, legal framework. And, I, you know, I think it's not that it's related to free private cities, but you can see this in some of their regional competitors and the amount of investment that's going into them because of a Honduras shifting to the the, you know, the the less attractive environment, and in particular, you know, in El Salvador or Panama that are taking these more pro business policies, these more secure property rights policies. They're not our model, but hey, you know, if they're going to follow towards more human freedom and flourishing, I encourage that, of course, and and as a result. El Salvador and Panama are seeing a fair amount of success in the past few years as a result. Well, I first traveled through Central America back in 2003. I took 18 months and I hitchhiked and backpacked through many countries throughout Latin America. And there are seven countries in Central America. And I went to every single one of them about 20 years ago, 20, 21 years ago. And I saw the development of the different countries. And I've been back to most countries since then. And I've seen the countries that have developed and I've seen the countries that have not developed. And it's very interesting. The countries like Panama, which have taken very firm stances on how taxation is viewed, on how you can own real estate and own land, the business structures, all these types of things. And you walk around Panama and it's like walking around Miami. It's amazing skyline, so much development, so much wealth here. Every second car is a Lexus or a Mercedes. And there's just so much going on here. And then you have other countries who did not go this path, and look at the state that they're in right now. Like this is completely anecdotal, I understand, but I mean, that's a pretty good sampling, 20 years. And if you look at somewhere like some of the other countries that we're discussing today, and then you look at a place like Panama, I mean, it's pretty, pretty clear. And now we'll see with Bukele in El Salvador, what's going to happen over the next 20 years and the development with Bitcoin and and opening up and how they're going to be doing residencies and taxation and things like that. How all of that plays out, I would expect to see a very similar trajectory. Absolutely. Well, assuming that they can maintain and enhance the sorts of policies. And that's one of the reasons why we really promote this free private city idea is, yeah, you might be a very free market president or prime minister, and that might be great for four years, but really capitalism for it to thrive, it's a long-term horizon. 100%. I mean, decisions for, you know, even just manufacturing companies are 20 plus years. You talk about, you know, city development and massive infrastructure development. We're talking about 50 year time horizons that they need to have some assurity that, you know, these sorts of property rights are going to be respected. These sorts of taxation 
regimes and schemes are going to stay approximately what they are or get better from the perspective of the investor. And that's how you really get development. So we'll see what happens in El Salvador. I'm very encouraged. I have been there twice myself recently, and and I, I am quite encouraged at what's happening, but it's a long-term play. And we, we actually think that the country could quite benefit from a free private city sort of idea, maybe even in conjunction with a Bitcoin city. That could be a, a very interesting thing to explore. Well, I've been interviewed about my opinions about El Salvador, and I am of the mindset that I'm in the wait and see type of phase. When I relocate one of my private clients to a new country, I really want to be assured about these things. Okay, I might be an early adopter for myself and even for my family with these things. But if I'm taking a family out of Canada or the US and I'm moving them to another country, I want to make sure that we really do have these things in place. The laws, the taxation, the infrastructure, the safety, the medical, that has to be at a certain level before I would feel comfortable making a recommendation for my people to go there. So yes, I'm following El Salvador very closely. And if together with Tipolis and with all the work we're doing with Patrick and with other people in this work, colleagues of ours, and we can create something there, then amazing. But I'm also not going to be the one diving in head first and, you know, telling everybody to move to El Salvador. I think it's, I'm just pragmatic about these things. Absolutely. No, I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's certainly what's happening in El Salvador to my eye is that the hardcore Bitcoin maxis have really pushed it and it's had many, many great effects so far. But for the rest of us that are either not, uh, you know, haven't been in this whole Bitcoin game since 2010, it's a bit more of a wait and see sort of approach. And so, you know, for that reason, I think there's there's definitely a lot of benefits towards a, a sort of free private city model in El Salvador. Well, for sure. I mean, okay, I do have Bitcoin maxis, 40-year-old Bitcoin maxis buying Bitcoin at $3 and have made tens of millions of dollars. I have clients like that who hire me. But to be honest with you, the majority of my clients are highly paid professionals. So we're talking lawyers, doctors, dentists, chiropractors, accountants and lawyers. I mean, these types of people hire me. And then business owners who have built something and created something. The majority of my people have a wife or a husband in tow, and they have kids or grandkids. So it's one thing to move someone down here to Panama or Mexico or Brazil or Colombia or Uruguay or Costa Rica or places like this. I think that El Salvador is kind of a different level. Now, in 10 years from now, can that change? For sure, 100%. But as of this recording, as we're speaking in August of 2023, I'm watching from the sidelines. Absolutely. I wouldn't fault you or disagree with it. I think that's sort of where Atipolis, for example, comes in and that we're perceiving that entrepreneurial profit opportunity in El Salvador. It's trending in the right direction. It's not there yet. There's improvement and we can be part of that improvement and then capture some of that value as a result of creating so much value for both the people of El Salvador as well as any expats. So I think we're pretty simpatico on that. And I, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see where things go in the future and Hopefully it's for the better. Amazing. Now, I sit on the advisory council for Tipoli. So I have knowledge and information about the company, which I can't share, but you're the chief financial officer. You have a different role. So can we talk about any of the projects in other countries? I'll let you completely take the lead on these things because I don't want to step on my non-disclosure agreement or anything. So... <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I don't think we should talk about any specific projects, but what we can do is we can talk holistically about sort of where we are and, and what my own experience has been being in, in the room and at the table for a number of these discussions over the past number of years. What's interesting is that a number of years ago, even just in call it 2020 or 2021, the idea of creating a ZA-like or free private city or anything of this sort of vein was a very, very difficult conversation to even have with relatively, if there is such a thing, simpatico government officials. They were okay with the idea of special economic zones. They were okay even with the whole, you know, Dubai International Financial Center and some of those things that are maybe less city building, but nonetheless, importing a pretty robust new 
legal code. They were okay with having those sorts of things, but this idea of making a sort of semi-autonomous city or a, a special administrative region, that was a much harder ask. That conversation is getting immensely easier. That door is being opened in I, we have, I think, counted up, we've been presented over 100 opportunities in the last three years. Most of them are not terribly worthwhile in pursuing for one reason or another. But I mean, that's still a number of opportunities. And then I would say of those, genuinely 20 plus actual conversations about these sorts of ideas. Doesn't mean that there's, okay, we're on board with it type of agreement. But you're not the crazy people anymore. I can understand why you want to do this. I can understand why we would want to do this. Is it possible in this country? TBD. We'll see. So the doors are being opened. We're definitely in communication with a number of different governments on these sorts of things. Each country is very, very unique, both in its legal code currently, as well as in its potential opportunities. Who might live there in its idealized version. And so we're exploring all of them now and on an ongoing basis as well. So we're very excited about the future. I'm not sure we've ever been in a position where the future is quite as bright in terms of prospects. And so we're very excited about that, but that leaves the hard part of developing these cities in front of us. So why do you think that they are more open these days? What What is the the changes that has opened their eyes to these possibilities? Yeah, I'd say it's it's really two things. It, well, per, I would say at least two things. Uh, I'm not sure I know all of it, but two things would be one, the COVID lockdowns have certainly hurt a number of countries disproportionately. The, the third world countries have really been hurt disproportionately and they need foreign direct investment. They're just in desperate need of these sorts of things. That's really one. I would say two is that we're just seeing the industry sort of grow. We're seeing lots of new startup cities, even without significant autonomy. We're seeing nation states even try autonomous cities such as Saudi Arabia with Naom. We're seeing large real estate developers try to make life easier on their clientele that might buy property by simply providing you know, what would typically be called governance services. So if you live here, you can have an easier job. This is how you, we're going to help you simplify the process to apply for you know, a new business license or whatever it is. They have no autonomy necessarily, but they're still providing that governance service. And then we're also seeing you know, there, there's a number of industry competitors of ours that seem to be propping up. And so I think it's just that this, this idea of large real estate development urbanization continuing to happen, especially in Africa and Latin America, as well as the need for investment that it's opening more doors. I'm sure there are other aspects to this complex puzzle, but those would be the the key ones that I see. Okay. That makes sense. Well, and it is interesting to see how quickly things can change. Because if I look in my industry, I do a lot with immigration. A couple of years ago, no one had even heard of a digital nomad visa. Then one country came out and then the next month, another three countries came out. And now there's like 50 countries that have digital nomad visas where you can stay for six months, a year, four years in a country by making an application. I actually wrote a book about it. We've not even announced it on the newsletter, but if you go to Amazon, you'll find it. It's called Digital Nomad Visas. And it's a 350-page book talking about all of the programs. And those have all come into existence over the last two and a half, three years. Once government decides that they're going to open up to these types of differences and ideas, actually things can move quite quickly, I think, in them. Absolutely. And I think that the sort of trend aspect to it is is at play with the whole private city industry as well. Absolutely. Prospera forging new territory as they have, has made it much easier. You can point to an actual project. You can point to the actual benefits they have. You can have a nuanced conversation typically. And I, I we do find that people are willing to have a conversation, you know, about, okay, is what we hear in the media accurate about Prospera? And, and of course, the answer is by and large, no. And so we are able to have those conversations and to point to real projects, which has certainly helped push the ball forward. And so I think governments, like you say, are definitely following trends as one does it, then other feels like they have to do it. And even though we don't think of governments as really in competition, and there's not enough competition in governance, I would argue, there is some. And so when someone does it, and they see some success, 
that changes the regional dynamics and makes others need to follow on board as well. And we would expect the same with as the digital nomad visas that will play out in some fashion as it relates to free private cities or similar entities. Well, I think it's interesting because we're seeing massive amounts of not just capital flight from Western countries, but also human flight as well. A lot of skilled people, highly educated people, productive members of society who have built something or created something. They're looking at the environment that they're in, in Canada, the States, France, Spain, the UK, these countries. And they're saying, you know what? Actually, I can have a better life living somewhere else, lower taxes, more freedom, better weather. I mean, I'm a Canadian. I don't want to shovel three feet of snow you how much snow did you have to in chicago like more than i want <laughs> exactly so i mean isn't it nice to come down here to latin america and have sunshine every single day and oh by the way no taxes for you and you can have a place in a beach and a place in the highlands and a place in the city and it's still going to cost you less than back home so i think that a lot of these, as I said, productive members of society are understanding these things and looking at opportunities elsewhere. And I think that what you're doing with the free private cities and with Tipolis and with all of these things, that is the direction that we're going. This is a long-term bet for me. I think that uh, you know, if I were to look out 20 years from now, 50 years from now, I think that this is the optimistic trend of, of what we can be bullish on. Absolutely. And that's what we're betting on as well. Certainly individual projects may have their uh, challenges and issues, and we're seeing some of that play out in Prospera, and they're certainly handling it as admirably as could be expected, and, and we'll see what happens. But that doesn't change the trajectory of this whole industry, and that it's on the rise. More of these will happen because you know economics, you, you can ignore economics, but you can't ignore the, re, the, uh, the outcomes of, of the decisions that you make. I mean, these things are going to happen regardless of what you want. So these trends are going to continue in my view. So let's wave a magic wand. It's now no longer 2023. It's 2033 or 2043 or something like that. What do you kind of imagine the future of Tipolis is? Do you think there'll be projects all over the world? Do you think it's only going to be in one region? What does that look like to you? Yeah, so we definitely think on a, call it a 10 to 15 year time horizon, that's enough to see the investment go in and to see, I wouldn't say the final success, you know, you don't get that by 15 years, but you can really start to see the trend that is taking off on any one of these projects. So we're really looking out towards, call it a 2035 time horizon. And we think that by 2035, we believe that there will be at least five, probably more like 10 Tipolis international cities. We think they will be in all regions, likely one to two in Africa, likely one to two to three in Latin America, potentially one in North America in some way. Definitely, there's at least a couple opportunities over in sort of Central Asia. Yeah, absolutely. Even out in Oceania, there's some opportunities. Now, it comes with their, their own set of challenges, of course, but we, we believe that there will be five to 10 by 2035 all over the globe. And most exciting, I would say, is that we think they're going to be working together in a sort of network type fashion. They will be subject to their own host nations, but nonetheless, it provides immigration easiness for people that are living in these cities, potentially new business partner, business logistics, sorts of uh, infrastructure for, for people to, to use and rely on and grow, as well as our ability to wage some of that economic power that we have across the globe and say, look, you agreed to a promise, you know, like the case in Honduras, you agreed to a promise. And look, you could come and march in here and you could, you know, roll the tanks in and take this back. But and, and you'll get all of the capital that's there. But what you won't get is the human capital behind it. We will just shift resources to another project. We will move all the residents to a new place that is equally as safe. And you know, you can take what we've built, but you're not going to get the sort of go forward basis. And we think that's, it's not that we want to have that threat outstanding as much as we would always want that to be there in order to incentivize governments to never do this in the first place. And we think that's really one of the biggest defenses we have. Well, and add to that, that if they do do that, we'll sue them for billions of dollars and it will be done in international court and good luck ever getting financing for their country again, if they don't comply with the results from the mediation. So, I mean, there is pushback. It's not like, oh, they can just do whatever they want and get away with it. There are real numbers. And I think that 
you know, the governments have to look very clearly at these things. Absolutely. Yep. Those are the conversations we don't like having. We don't want them. We want to make money through being successful entrepreneurs and developing these sorts of things. But uh, in order to make major, major billion dollar investments. Yeah, but property rights are super important and absolutely we have to stick by them. And I have no problem enforcing property rights whatsoever. Absolutely. I'm in agreement with you on that. So talk to me about Liberty in Our Lifetimes coming up, Czech Republic. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there. We're both keynote speakers that week. What can you tell everybody about Liberty in Our Lifetime conference? Yeah, so Liberty in Our Lifetime is the key event held by the Free Cities Foundation each year. It was in Prague last year, Prague again this year. We'll see about moving forward. This year, it's October 14th and 15th. And really, the concept behind the conference is that We've all been to conferences that are talking about freedom and libertarianism and theory, and those are all great, and I do enjoy them. I enjoy participating in them, speaking at them, and so on and so forth. But we want to develop a conference that is specifically devoted to what projects are happening in the world right now that are bringing more human freedom and flourishing to people. And so that's what we've done. It's really focused on free cities, but there's also complementary aspects as well. So last year, I think it was parallel structures for progress. So we focused on alternative education systems. We focused on Bitcoin as opposed to traditional banking finance and then free cities in terms of governance. This year, we're turning the focus to opting into freedom. And so we're going to really like to hear from Mikkel about the work that he's doing, helping people opt into freedom, as well as some other projects, you know, free city projects where people are voluntarily going to join and choosing the lifestyle and the governance structure that they want to live under. So if you can make it, we would love to have you in Prague, uh, October 14th and 15th. We we think it'll be a, a, a great turnout and you're going to hear about some inspiring entrepreneurs and stories about what people are doing here and now to make the world a better place. Yes, I am super excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you guys are going to be in the region, if you guys want to come and check it out, actually, do you happen to know the the URL for the website? I'm not. I'm sure if we Google Liberty in Our Lifetimes, it should take them there. But if, if you have a URL, feel free to shout it out. Yep. So it's libertyinourlifetime.org. Amazing. Okay. And for my presentation, I actually had to pick the topic. So it's interesting that you brought it up. My presentation is going to be called Opportunity Arbitrage, How Expat Families Can Leverage the Offshore Markets to Grow Their Human Capital. So actually pretty applicable to our earlier conversation about what's happening in the world and human flight and capital flight. So I think that that well, hopefully should be very interesting. So if you guys are in the region, if you want to come over and see me speak, if you want to see Alex speak or or meet everybody, make sure you guys join us live in Prague this October. It's going to be a ton of fun. Absolutely. should be a ton of fun. And all of the speakers are going to be there and you know networking in the crowd. So if you have questions or, or want to have a talk about, hey, can I get involved? Is there any job openings? Those sorts of things. We'll all be there and just you know grab one of us, pull us aside, and let's get to talking. Amazing. Alex, thank you so much for the conversation today. Super, super fascinating. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about your work, where can we send them? Awesome. Thanks, Mikkel. So as I mentioned, you can go to libertyinourlifetime.org for the conference. You can go to free-cities.org for information from the Free Cities Foundation. And then you can go to tipolis.com if you want to hear more about what Tipolis is in the market and creating. Finally, I've recently started a Substack. If you want to see my writings and podcast appearances and those sorts of things, there will be some new content as well as some reposting of content that I've put out elsewhere. You can go to virtusvoss.substack.com. That's V-I-R-T-U-S, my last name, voss.substack.com. Amazing. And we'll make sure to put all of the links for that at expatmoneyshow.com under Alex's episode. Alex, thank you again for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mikkel, for having me. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. 
Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.